0: Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. This is yet another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light, so together let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. We have two guests today, and this is a first for Dr. Doctor. Dr. doctor Uh, I think we've had siblings who have been on at different times. Well, now we have two generations of the same family at the same time. First, we have Dr. Rusty Chavey. He's founder and president of Emmaus Health in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as associate professor of family medicine at University of Michigan. He's service chief for uh, that, he's a sis- associate chief of staff of the U of M Hospital. His son Will uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Dallas, and is now a first-year MBA student at Harvard, a little school somewhere out in the Northeast near where the New England Patriots play. Uh, Rusty and Will, welcome to Dr. Doctor Doctor.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Oh, hey, uh, you're welcome. And by the way, Rusty used to have his own radio show, medical radio show called Vital Signs. So Rusty's an old hat at this. So Rusty, you own a small Catholic
1: practice called Emmaus Health. Tell us about that practice. Sure. So 2014, we opened Emmaus Health and what I've called an experiment in Catholic health care. I think in 2000. Uh, era, we think of Catholic healthcare largely as the Catholic hospitals. And really, I think it's hard to respect the anthropological, historical, and theological traditions of the church in a large healthcare system today. And so I think there's really a lot of confusion about what Catholic healthcare is. I'm a primary care physician, and it was our belief that Catholic healthcare could be transcendent of every encounter that you have. So it doesn't just—it shouldn't just be at the hospital. It shouldn't just be around women's reproductive health issues. It should be transcendent. And so we started this practice uh, with family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, and mental health in an effort to try to bring that to the community. We have since merged with our local crisis pregnancy center as well as an OB-GYN practice so that we now have women's health as well.
0: And there is a network of small Catholic practices popping up around the country, aren't there?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of uh, clinics just like Emmaus. I think we're all still trying to figure out what that Catholic identity means. Does it mean that you're providing care uh, to the inner city, focusing on common good? Does it mean that you're providing women's reproductive health care? Does it mean that you're providing primary care across all specialties? I think we're all trying to figure these out. But there are a number of initiatives like Emmaus and through the Catholic Medical Association, we have a network of 30, 40, 50 such clinics that have cropped up.
0: Now, I understand with uh, my discussions yesterday with Steve White, who um, is the chairman of our healthcare policy committee, that there is somewhat of an existential threat against many of these clinics because of the pandemic. Is that true?
1: So I think there's really an existential threat against small business and actually even not just small business. But um, you know, I never really thought as a physician that I would be in a situation where I was doing everything possible to keep patients from coming to my office. Wow. But that's that's in essence what we have been uh, forced to do. And when I say forced, I don't mean by some external agency, forced by the situation. So uh, it would be imprudent <clears throat> to bring someone in for a physical exam who was otherwise healthy expose them to the potential risk of being infected, when we are also going to be seeing people who are sick. So what we have done basically is scrub schedules. And this is not just at Emmaus, but hospitals and health systems around the country have postponed elective surgeries for months on end. We've postponed routine physical exams for weeks or months. Uh, We've even postponed chronic care. We're now triaging patients over the phone And trying to figure out if people really absolutely have to come in and if you think about uh, the real cruelty of this virus it's it's affecting the people who are already sick the people who have comorbid conditions and the people who are older those are the ones who you might want to bring into the office but now you're most reluctant to bring them in so your revenue stream goes away Um, and and it's very hard obviously to operate a business i don't have to have my son's mba to understand <laughs> that that's not how you run a business but your expenses remain there and so as an existential threat that it is absolutely there the, the there's a public policy arm of the american academy of family medicine called the graham institute and they published just last week a statistic that i found rather alarming that said that by june 60,000 family medicine offices would be closed or significantly shut down, and 800,000 of their employees would have been furrowed, laid off, or unemployed.
0: That is shocking. It it refocuses the attention. And Will, besides the fact that your dad's practice is facing a, a significant threat, what is your interest in what's going on now?
2: Yeah, so I think a big, I think it's a few different things. One is that about 50% of of Americans who are employed are employed by small and medium-sized businesses, people with less than 500 employees, and so a big part of of trying to help is trying to help a huge a huge swath of of American workers. And then when you break that down even further, the typical business from the literature that I've read has about one to two months of cash on hand and wow. so that's all. what that means that's that's it and so when you combine that with the fact you know my my dad was talking about this there's two types of costs for a business there's fixed costs which you pay no matter what and then your your variable expenses and whatnot right. and so these fixed costs which are things like payroll and rent you have to pay no matter what and when you're in a forced to shut down and no one's allowed to come in and pay you money, um, then then that that obviously means that has to effectively come out of that cash that you have on hand. And so you combine it with a big opportunity and, and I think a very acute need. And that was, those were kind of the things that, that drew me to it.
0: And uh, if I understood correctly, you and some of your fellow classmates have been doing something to try to help people, businesses through this.
2: Yeah. There's, there's a number of MBA students, both, both at Harvard and then, and really more nationally who I think had the same thought of what, what can we do to help? Um, As an aside about MBA programs, there's a a typical, a a big percentage of the time that you spend is often socializing and going to events and a lot of in-person activities that are currently disallowed. And so I think we, many of us have more time on our hands than we otherwise would. And so there's, there's, different networks of students all trying to ask and answer the same question of what are the big needs that the small business community have and what are some things that we could do to try to assist with that.
0: So we're specifically talking about something passed and signed called the CARES Act. And uh, we last week had on uh, an economist, just brilliant. This was an incredible interview with Tim Reichert. uh, And he distinctly explained that the CARES Act is not a stimulus plan He said it's what economists would call a helicopter drop of money. Uh, It's not borrowed money. It's just extra printed money. And he said that while it might seem like it has no value, but by printing the money, the government's making the bet that the future economic activity would actually provide value to it. How does that make sense to you, Will?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was joking with my dad before. I don't know if this is something that economists would agree on entirely. But I think the general idea is is a couple of things. I think just like with bar, printing money, um, you you increase the the money supply, and kind of the the very very simplified explanation is that each dollar is now worth less. But the total amount of wealth that's in an economy doesn't actually change. It's just now you've measured it in more units than you did before. Right. And so in a way, when you are printing more money, you are either saying I'm going to penalize everyone who has saved money um, by making the amount of money that they saved worth less in terms of purchasing power, or I am betting that by virtue of printing all this money, I'm also going to be increasing the total output, the total amount that we can produce as an economy. And so the way wealth is created obviously from from an economic standpoint, is businesses need to uh, buy certain inputs and then add value and then produce them in terms of outputs for for consumers or, or for other businesses. And so if you, by virtue of keeping these businesses afloat, keep machinery from going extinct and keep people's expectations in line, that they will have a job and that they can continue spending dollars and supporting the overall ecosystem, then perhaps in theory, you can put the overall level of economic output higher than you would if, if you let all of those things go dormant.
0: Uh, You did a great job explaining that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, No, I really appreciate that. So the, this podcast, we are, most want to help fellow physicians who are struggling with small practices. We also want to help or small businesses. Uh, we also want to help uh, any listeners who may have a small or medium-sized business to understand this better. So, we Will, take it away. Explain the parts of the CARES Act that would most apply to practices like your dad's, like mine, where we have about 85 to 90 employees. What do we need to know?
2: Yeah, and stop me at any time, Tom, if I'm getting too much into the into the weeds as we Will do. go through this. Um, so, in the CARES Act, I think there's two main parts, and really one that I'm going to focus on, which is the Paycheck Protection Program, um, and or PPP. so of the money that was passed, PPP. So, 350 billion was allocated to the PPP through the through the Treasury, uh, or sorry, through the Act, and then another 10 billion was allocated to something called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. Uh, which I'll I'll touch on briefly, but I'll, I'll focus primarily on the PPP. Very good. And like we touched on earlier, businesses have these fixed costs and payroll, especially for physicians. Right, you have to pay the physicians whether or not whether or not they see patients, or 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 at least I guess they they would probably hope that that that's the case. And then you you certainly have to pay your rent um and some of these other costs and so those costs are going to continue while the offices themselves are telling patients not to come in and not to bring in in money and so what the what the program does is it says okay what what's the business going to do most likely they're going to try to lay off people um, in order to increase the amount of cash that they have but that we know that that's bad for those people and that's um bad for our economy writ large as well and so what we can do is we can say okay if you agree to keep those people employed then we will pay for their salaries for you Uh, so we'll give you a loan Um, at the end of it if you prove that you mostly spent the money on payroll and we can learn specifics of it but if you prove that you mostly spent the money on payroll and then a couple of other kind of allowable overhead costs then we'll forgive the entire loan
0: and that's up to what eight weeks of pay
2: up to eight weeks of pay so the way the maximum it's no more than 10 million dollars and it's also um, no more than two and a half times your annualized monthly salary. So as an example, if you spend a million dollars on payroll, actually I'll say $1.2 million on payroll in 2019, that means on average you were paying 100000 a month. And that would mean the max loan that you're eligible for is $250,000.
0: Right. But you only get that paid back to you if you had just as many employees paid.
2: Yeah. So, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of specificity on it and and I'll kind of run through some of the, I think, important ones. Um, So first of all, I think you, you briefly touched on this, who can apply. There's what they, the treasury has been inconsistent on this, in my opinion. I've read something from the treasury that said anyone with fewer than 500 employees is eligible to apply. Um, Also, if you read the final interim rule, it mentions that it has to be a small business as more or less defined in other SBA literature. And I followed that literature and there are specific revenue allowances. Um, so in the case of physicians, it looks like uh, 16.5 million and under is considered a small business. And I think that's a question that is, that is not, I, I do not know what the answer is right now. If you are a practice with fewer than 500 employees, but more than 16.5 million in revenue, do you qualify? And that's a question that um, I'm, Still trying to work with banks and the SBA to, to figure out the answer to. But Very good. Once once we limit ourselves to the ecosystem of businesses who do qualify, and that's once other than those ramifications, it's as long as you were in business by February fifteenth um, of this year, and as long as no owners have criminal records or have been doing <laughs> on SBA loans in the past, those are your kind of those are your kind of hurdles. Then then it becomes a question of what was last what was your payroll. And for your typical business, what they would do is they look at 2019 payroll documents, QuickBooks Expert or export or whatever whatever else, and they would take the total amount of aggregate income paid to each employee, less any amount for any specific employee in excess of $100,000, which is probably particularly relevant for positions. So the employee would still qualify, but only up to $100,000 What
0: about employee. the owners? Are owners considered employees under this rule?
2: I think that it has what the documentation you that I've seen has always looked at payroll documentation. So if the owner is not being paid a salary within the practice, it does not appear to me. Uh, this is my, I don't know what hundred percent, but it appears to me that the answer would be no, they would not be covered in this case.
0: So if we are paid monthly based on collections, we would not count as employees.
2: If you, if you get effectively, if you get a W2 or a 1099, then you would count as an employee by so my we understanding. Would,
0: then we would count. Great. Okay. Uh, um, go ahead. You had more.
2: Yeah. So, so um, you, you add up all of those and that gets you your total, your total payroll amount. You can multiply that by two and a half and that gets you your max loan amount. And then this is, I think, going to be lender specific, but then they're going to want to say, okay, well, how much money will you actually be able to spend by keeping those same salaries and by paying rent and utilities, um, interest on mortgage, those are kind of the qualified other expenses that you can mm-hmm. spend this money on. And so when I add up all of those that I can prove that I'm going to be spending over the next eight weeks, then that would be my actual loan amount. So they'll fund, at least in our experience, they, they didn't want to fund the maximum loan amount. They wanted to, to fund the loan amount for which we would have qualified expenses, for which my dad's practice would have qualified
0: expenses. Now Um, I heard, I wanna clarify something. So I know of dentists, I mean, all their practices are completely shut down. And on one um, webinar for dentists, they were recommended not to apply for the CARES Act because they will not have anybody working for the time being. Is that good advice, bad advice, or unclear?
2: I, I haven't seen anything that that would suggest that they should not apply. What it says um, repeatedly in the guidance is that all businesses relative, subject to the same kind of constraints that I gave you before that meet those criteria are eligible. And so if dentist offices want to continue paying rent and be able to continue to keep employees on payroll, then, um, then I think it would make sense to apply. I, I think it, it wouldn't make sense. There's So there's certain costs that um, are included, you can only spend 75% of the money, or sorry, at least 75% of the money has to be spent on payroll. So and if so those if employees
0: have- are all laid off right now,
2: that's yeah. what I
0: think the basis of that recommendation was. So if all your employees are already laid off on unemployment, then does it make sense to apply?
2: So you can rehire them, um, and it's st- you're still allowed to rehire them and pay them. So that be- can become a question between you and your employees on, um, you know what? how much are they making on unemployment versus how much would they make if they were rehired and which one is better. You may also have other costs that would not be considered payroll costs, so they would have to come out of the overhead related to things like, um, so for instance, if you're paying an insurance premium on behalf of your employee, that's considered pay and that's part of payroll costs, but the costs that you pay administratively to run an insurance benefits program would not be covered. And so, so if, as an example, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Let me, let me come up with uh, something practical in our group. So everybody that we have laid off right now, we are paying all of their health care uh, premiums, including the part that they would normally put in. So you're saying that those would count toward payroll.
2: I don't know about the parts that they would normally put in, but the parts that you pay on behalf of them in the benefits program um, for health insurance premiums would be counted as payroll.
0: That's very helpful. Let me ask you another practical question. Uh, We are still open for business, but you know the in in person visits are way down. Telehealth is up, Mm -hmm. so we want Mm -hmm. to maintain social distancing in the office. So if we brought everybody back in the office, we would not be able, with our employees, to be able to maintain social distancing. So say that we apply for an amount, but we can only bring back half of the the people laid off. That means that we therefore would only be eligible to have a certain portion written off, not the whole portion that we would be eligible to get in this loan program. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Although I believe if you bring back everyone and just pay them and don't ask them to come into work, that that would be a viable um, use of the funds as well. Um, okay, thank that, you. From my reading of it, you can bring everyone
1: back. Yes, yes, Rusty. Let, let me offer this. There is something that's been called the Lombardi model that some places have uh, tried at the University of Michigan. We've looked at this. comes from the region of Italy, Lombardi, Italy, oh. where what they were doing is um, having people work every other week. So what that allowed was everybody to have a period of time where they could be away, and it would... You could figure out during that time if they were developing any symptoms. And then um, the other half of the workforce would be working during the alternate week. So that way you kept everyone employed. You gave everyone a chance to try to be safe and to minimize contact. That way you could still employ everyone. And under this program, you could have everyone on the payroll still pay them even though half of them were not working for each week.
0: That's and, very practical, and, to, and and one of the things Tim Riker mentioned that you lose by shutting down the economy are organizational networks, and that by keeping them coming back, even every other week like that, you maintain t- those relationships that are key for any good functioning business. Go ahead, Will.
2: I, just to double down on on the point too of of I think the benefit for a lot of these these places, you um, in addition to getting to keep your employees paid, which I'm sure most small business owners is very near and dear to their heart. You also are allowed to use up to 25% of the loan amount for non payroll costs. So you can lay off all your employees and those costs would go away and they can perhaps get taken care of with uninsurance benefits or with uh, unemployment benefits. But your rent costs, unless you have a particularly forgiving landlord, is probably going to stay no matter what. And your utility costs will probably be something no matter what. And so you can use up to 25% of this right. to pay those as well for the next 2 months, which I think is a, another really big benefit.
0: Uh, oh, and we were looking at that and that's uh, important to us too. Are there any other basics of this program we should know right now?
2: So I think we we touched on this um as as we were talking before, but I think one of the big ones is you know, this was passed whatever a couple of weeks ago, the CARES Act and the SBA has been racing along with the Treasury to get this out um, as quickly as possible. And so there are parts of it that are probably going to be somewhat at the lender's discretion in terms of how exactly this looks. So when you're thinking practically, okay, what do I need to do in order to apply for this? There may be some differences from one bank to the next, and I'm sure we'll go through more specifically what the application process looks like. So I would just, um, I would, I guess, preach, A, we'll know more over the course of the next couple of weeks, but I think also insofar as the way the process works, you have to apply to a bank and the bank applies for forgiveness. So work with the bank, see what they want. And that might that might have to suffice for now in terms of guidance on how to, on how practically to make sure you've dotted your I's and, and crossed your T's uh, in the program until some of these kinks have been worked out and, and, and we have more clear guidance from, from up top.
1: So if I can, last, if I oh, go switch, ahead, Rusty. Yeah. I was say, if I could switch gears and be the host here for a second, ask Will a question. Will, go is ahead. $350 billion enough?
2: Yeah. So uh, I did some back of the envelope math on this as well. Um, so I think it's something like 50 million people are employed by small and medium-sized businesses. And um, what percentage of those have enough economic hardship to justify participating in the program? I, I guess I didn't mention that explicitly, but you, you need to certify that you need this money in order to sustain your business on a go forward basis. there's no, no one checks up on that. You just, you have to promise that. And so if we assume that some vast majority of businesses will either be eligible to claim that or will claim that regardless, and you have $350 billion, then if I'm doing my math right and I'm sure my dad will correct me if I'm not, um, then that's effectively $7,000 per person. Over the course of eight weeks, which if you make that about thirty-five hundred a month and you annualize that, I think that comes out to what somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars a person. Um, but the program covers employees up to hundred thousand dollars, and so I don't know how the median incomes work out. But I think there's the potential for this to be um, to for this to be oversubscribed.
0: Okay, but I thought the number, the 7,000 is not unreasonable. Yes, I, I got the same number when I did it. Now, just uh, Thursday, so today is Sunday, just Thursday, our controller said that three times during that day, the application process changed. Have they settled on a final application process and form?
2: Um, they have settled on a form that is viable, that you can apply with. Through the banks whether there will be additional tweaks I, I i can't say with certainty do you have to
0: apply through uh, your local bank
2: you do not have to apply to the local bank however i've spoken to um, many banks throughout the process and many of them are not accepting applications except for their existing customers at least as of now
0: and and, and my so, local if you s- have an account yeah my local small had- bank we have a A private banker and they actually called my wife when I was at work Thursday and said did did we know about the PPP and my wife Hmm. said well yeah and she said well I'm going to call their controller to make sure that they're doing this because our private bank is actually the same bank our practice has and it's just one of the blessings of having a private local bank instead of a big national bank so they our bank has been outstanding.
2: Yep. And it's up to the bank's discretion. From from what I can tell, certainly true of just your typical FDIC insured bank, and possibly even true of your SBA lender, that it's to their discretion as to if and, and to the extent that they participate. And they do get paid uh, an origination fee on these loans. I don't know the economics as to how attractive that is to them, but I think that a lot of them are concerned about being overwhelmed administratively throughout this process. And so definitely the best advice I can give people right now is first check with your local bank where you are already an existing customer or your national bank. If you check with any bank with whom you have an account today. So is the application
0: with the bank or with the government or both?
2: It's with the bank. So it's, it's the same okay. process. It's there's something called an, an SBA 7A type loan, and this okay. is a modified SBA 7A type loan. So you apply part the bank.
0: Except this one, the interest rates, what, only 1%.
2: That's right. It's 1%. There's no payments due for the first six months, Um, although interest does accrue, and then it's forgivable as long as you use it for these qualified expenses that we talked
0: about. So when I was talking with my partners about this yesterday, we said at the absolute very worst case scenario that we got forgiven nothing, it's an incredibly cheap line of credit. That's right. Okay.
2: So now for some people, just to I I do think this is a great deal for small businesses and everyone who qualifies should absolutely apply for it. Um, I will say if you do want it to say the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is your employees would have been just as well off on unemployment benefits. You rehire them all because you must rehire them all in order to be qualified for this loan. You don't get it, you don't get it forgiven. And so instead of being to avail your employees of unemployment benefits to get them through the crisis, you reemployed them. You didn't have them work, and now you're responsible for paying those two months of payroll that you may not have otherwise had.
1: Well,
0: which brings me to the point: is we, you know, we don't want to bring anybody back unless we know we're approved. I mean, isn't that going to be what yeah. most small business owners think?
2: Yeah, my understanding is that you are allowed to rehire. It, it says you must either not have laid off or you must rehire quickly um, all employees. So, I the way I've read it, um, and this is perhaps worth verifying with, with the lending bank. But the way I've read it is that it's effectively from disbursement bank. So as soon as you're uh, sorry, disbursement date. So as soon as the funds are dispersed, you must rehire all of the employees kind of on that day. But if you don't have to have them currently hired um, and you can wait and and make sure you're approved.
0: Oh, so we have to be prepared on the disbursement date to rehire as many as we plan to rehire or do it, does it have to be all of them?
2: It says, it says quickly rehire. Um, I don't think it specifies a a timeline on it in terms of all or some, or go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, go. I'm, I'm listening. This is great.
2: In terms of all or some, it says that there will be penalties if you reduce the amount of employees from the amount that you had on February 15th. Um, how that, what exactly the penalties will be? I don't know. And I also don't know if you can apply and say, I'm only going to bring back half of my employees and pay them the same salary um, if you're still eligible to have those, whether it's, it's an all or nothing type thing, or if it's just a uh, scalar within that, I haven't seen guidance that explicitly answers that.
0: Question. Uh, and that's one of the key questions that we have. So what happens in this scenario, there is a, a lot of employees off and uh, many of them are getting that $600 bonus uh, with unemployment, so they're actually making more now than they were when they were working. What if not everybody wants to come back, and they decline a, posi- uh, a position to come back, and we can't get back as many people as we had on the payroll February fifteenth?
2: Yeah, I think this is the type of thing that I think the they tried to rush as quickly as they could to get basic guidance out so that people can apply, and I just don't think the SBA has given a good answer. I'm willing to give it my best guess.
0: Okay. And I'll take that.
2: <laughs> the The spirit, the spirit of of the bill and, and how it's written, is that you effectively you need to keep all of your employees. But if the employee has chosen to move on for some other reason, or if the employee doesn't want to come back, it would not be consistent with the spirit of the bill for you to uh, for you to be penalized for that. And so, how I would guess that they're going to yes, operate yes. is they're going to look at um, how many people you rehired. And insofar as that actually would have wanted to come back. And as long as you're rehiring all of those people and not reducing any of their salaries by more than I think 25%, then you will be eligible for the entire forgiveness of the loan amount that you get.
0: Okay. Rusty, did you have any questions like that about your own group?
1: Actually, I have a uh, ongoing opportunity to pick Will's brain uh, as he's saying <laughs> in my point. house. So yeah.
0: Uh, an excellent point. So what is your hope, Rusty, that this will be able to help Emmaus Health achieve?
1: Well, I, you know, I think certainly two months should be, should be adequate and reasonable, or we hope that it is if you look at the projections, uh, and that we can get through that. I have seen some systems that have done some analysis of what their financial picture is going to be by the end of the calendar year. And they're actually seeing, in, in those models, a huge increase in their billable revenue by virtue of all the pent up care. Um, and so uh, hopefully, I mean, there still is going to be loss. There's still this, this program won't cover everything, but hopefully if it provides enough cash flow to keep you viable and to keep your employees hired, whatever the other losses are, you can make up uh, through the end of the year as you're, as you're, um, getting caught up on all of this pent up activity that you're deferring right now.
0: Okay. That's, that's very good. I'm trying to see here. Let's see. We had some questions. Um, Oh, is there an advantage of trying to go through more than one lender, or is that not even allowed to make sure you see if you get approved?
2: Yeah. I, so this is a, I can see it both ways. So you're definitely only allowed to each business is only allowed to have one of these loans approved. And so if you go through multiple lenders, you're getting a positive and a negative. The positive is you get to have the lenders compete against each other to see who gets it approved faster because there is a limited amount of funds that might be to your benefit. The negative is whether you end up complicating your own application because the SBA, through some timing mechanism, ends up seeing two applications for your specific tax ID number. And that ends up forcing some sort of other administrative explanations and all of those extra costs.
0: So you could make more problems for yourself by applying to two places.
2: Yeah. And and it has not at all been clear to me, at least, what the mechanism is. Would that, which, which of those is the clear winner in this case? I I could see it going either way. Um, Perhaps as long as you're working with the bank and the bank doesn't actually, the bank's willing to tell you before they hit go and send it to the SBA then I suppose it would be to your benefit to have multiple people. Um, but if you don't have that transparency, I think it is possible, although I don't know the likelihood, that you would end up creating extra problems for yourself.
0: Okay. Um, and then the, the whole forgiveness calculation, is that still yeah. up in the
2: air? They've given um, – I think they they basically – or I guess I'll ask you a question first. When you say up in the air, what do you mean?
0: Are the details narrow, um, nailed down? Uh, because, uh, for instance, one of the things in there it says you can pay an employee as little as 75% of their original salary and still be forgiven. But if you go under 75%, that's yeah. not forgiven. Or at least the part that's below 75% is, yeah. is not forgiven. So is it based yeah. on individual calculation or just a group number? Or do they look at each individual person?
2: Yeah. So that part, the best I have, there's a document that they put out. It's a fact sheet for lenders, I believe, or maybe for borrowers. It's on the treasury.gov forward slash cares site. And it says uh, on level of payroll, and I'm reading it right now, it says your loan forgiveness will also be reduced if you decrease salaries and wages by more than 25% for any employee that may than 100000 annualized. Any single and employee. So that, that implies it's for every, any single employee. The only thing I would say is that this is the fact sheet. It's not part of the interim final rule. And it is perhaps, um, I, I think it's one of the kind of the things that will be worked out over the next couple of weeks.
0: Very good. Let's see the, the next one he had. Oh yeah. How do they determine FTEs? Is it based on um, hours or employees? Like what if our, we have many employees who work 24, 30, 35 hours?
2: Yeah, um, I think this is. Unfortunately, I, I think I've been giving you this answer a lot. I don't think the application is clear. Okay. If you read the actual application, it says full time equivalents and it asks you for the amount of full time equivalents. Um, if you read the same fact sheet that I just read to you, it actually doesn't ask for that at all. It asks for, it says your loan forgiveness will be reduced if you decrease your full time employee headcount. So um, there's a full time employee can obviously be defined differently than a full time equivalent. And so, um, I think what i my best guess is, a, work with your lender, see what the lender wants. They'll have an answer for that. Um, I, my My second thought is that as long as you're consistent on application and on verification, you will probably be okay. And then my third thought is if you ever have another use case in which you're asked to provide full time equivalents, whether that be filing taxes or any other government form, I would just try to be consistent with that. And I, I certainly don't think, I think that you would be gently uh, corrected if, if that happens to be a mistake.
0: Because they understand everyone's in the same boat here with lack of yeah. clarity on some of the finer details. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, another question, I think you've answered this, but when does the PPP calculation start and end? So if the loan's approved on the 15th of April, does the calculation then end on the 15th of June?
2: Um, yeah, I think it's eight weeks from disbursement. So it would it's be less than that. eight weeks following disbursement of the funds. Yeah. So, so the Th- clock starts on
0: disbursement date, and it ends eight weeks later, not necessarily two yes. months later.
2: I was wondering that's, why. That's my understanding.
0: Because from the, it was approved in late March, and it runs through June 30th. So that's more than, than eight weeks. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, how that those two different time periods work.
2: That's the application window. So you can apply and be approved as long as there's sufficient funding up until uh, the latter. I think you said June 30th. Um, right. So you can apply and be approved up through June 30th as long as there are funds available. But for you, for you in particular, your specific um, funding and use of funds starts following the disbursement itself. So there's it's the application window and then there's a separate use window.
0: How long do you think it's going to take to find out if you're approved? Or, or did you already find out at Emmaus Health?
2: No, we haven't found out. I think uh, that's that's a great question um, from some of the – I'll give you two numbers. I, I believe in Hurricane Sandy, although you can look this up, it generally took people 18 days to be approved for disaster funding. So that's one data point. Um, they're trying to, I think, share the load across the entire banking system so that people can be expedited quickly. And the application itself is really very, very straightforward. It's A couple of pages, some payroll documentation, some um, validation that you're a real business. And I mean, perhaps some lenders will want more, but that's kind of the core of it. And so in theory, it could be very fast. The only only thing I'll say is I expect there'll be tons of these applications and we will be overwhelming the kind of existing system. So how much that causes delays, I don't know.
0: And so another question that another doctor, you know, uh, sent me before today is say that our eight week period ends on June 15th. we we'll say that our business is still very slow for whatever reason, however, the pandemic plays out. If we yep. then furlough employees at that date, would we be penalized if it's after the eight week
2: period? I don't believe so.
0: OK. Rusty. Um- what, what other questions would you have that you think other doctors who own practices will want to know the answers to?
1: Well, I think for a lot of people who don't have a son with the time and the capability <laughs> to do this, or who don't have the resources to hire someone is how do they work through this? I mean, Will's walked through a lot of the details with the questions that you have asked. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the question would be who's going to help people fill this out. Will the banks help them? Will their accountant help them? What support are they gonna have uh, to work through this process?
0: It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least where I have been, people really seem willing to help each other through this. Are you, are you seeing the same things in your ecosystems?
1: I, mean, I think for the most part, I, as, uh, as we've talked about uh, in my own house, I think uh, there, there are a small group of people who have severe anxiety about this whole thing and have been somewhat paralyzed by it. Apart from that, I have seen that sort of collective support and collective action, as you described. Um, I've seen it more in my own area of medicine. I have not reached out to accountants and bankers. I'm assuming accountants are still quite busy in the midst of uh, tax dates. And while the federal tax uh, deadline has been delayed, the states may be Uh, some may, some may not have delayed. So accountants might be quite busy. So I'm not sure what capacity they would have to help out.
0: Will, some of this sounds too good to be true. Is it?
2: (laughs) Um, I don't think so. I I suppose there are always potential complicating factors, but um, I think I think the the bigger kind of concern would be whether it's whether it's not enough, whether this is something that lasts through the summer. And then you're, you know, you're continuing to have some of these issues in July and August, at least, at least from my standpoint, that would be a bigger concern to me.
0: So, uh, We like to bring in Catholic principles where they apply. You know, the big Catholic principle here is subsidiarity, that an organization at a higher level should not interfere with uh, an organization at a lower level unless absolutely necessary. So are we caving in with these small groups by allowing the federal government to help us, or is this an appropriate time for just that type of activity? Which one? So the, the
2: question is, sorry, which uh, my dad or me, either one. Both. Go ahead. Will. I'll, I'll take I, I, my, my recollection of reading the principle is that the problem, as you kind of alluded to the problem should be solved. At the level, the, the smallest level that can solve the problem. Correct. Effectively. Correct. And so I think in this case, if I think about what effectively is being done, you alluded to this earlier, we're effectively printing money in order to, or at least borrowing money at tremendous scale. In order to try to keep people afloat while we wait out this crisis. And um, we can kind of debate the, the economics of it, but I don't think that local or state governments would be capable of providing this form of assistance.
1: Otherwise stated, and I would agree, the federal government may be the smallest entity able to help address this.
0: Uh, I, I happen to think that you're right, but I think some listeners may may wonder about it. But yes, I think this is one of those times. Um, what else that we haven't discussed, uh, Will, do you think that listeners should know?
2: Um, one is probably a clarification of a point I made earlier that I do think is important. I, I mentioned uh, if you have people who receive 1099s or W-2s, they are employees, and that is true. However, for purposes of payroll costs and for purposes of forgiveness, anyone who is a contractor, an independent contractor, can apply separately. um, And so they would not be included in payroll costs for this business. So if you are a 1099, you effectively are considered to have your, your own business and you can apply personally for the payroll protection program for the lost wages that you yourself experience. And so to avoid double counting, those people would not be included for the business's application of uh of payroll forgiveness in the paycheck protection program
0: ah very good and rusty what final comments do you want to make
1: god is still in charge (laughs) he will reveal to us uh the lessons we need to learn from this and why this was allowed and through this he is giving us an opportunity to be saints
0: thanks be to god rusty and will You've been a wonderful tag team. Thanks for being with us on this episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you listeners for being with us on the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
2: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598, or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.
0: Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.